Welcome back, folks, to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. On today's show, we have Al Uzinski from Inside Lighting. Man, that was a good review of uh, what's going to, or preview of what's going to happen in 2021, Greg. Of what might happen in 2021, Mike. Might not. (laughs) Who knows, right? (laughs) Good discussion, though, for sure. We went on. This episode of the show, mm -hmm, you're all waiting for it, is brought to you by Keystone Technologies. Go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. I know you're there every day, Greg. I see you there on Keystone. What's happening? Oh, I'm here right now. Backlit LED flat panels. All right, everybody talks flat panels. We know about flat. Everybody has a flat panel, right? The flat mm-hmm. panels, they're not all treated the same. They're not, they aren't all the same. I'm learning that as I'm out in the field. I've been seeing certain cheap flat panels that were put in a few years ago started to yellow or change color or do things like that. Mm-hmm. What does Keystone have? They're, they're doing a backlit panel. And why do they do backlights? Because they have all the individual LED chips in there that they can then cover and ensure that it doesn't yellow. So the fixture is not going to yellow. The lighting is not going to yellow. It's going to give you the color you want. It's going to give you the output you want. And you get to choose it. Selectable. Three different wattages, three different colors right on the fixture. Easy to put in. And they have it as a retrofit kit now, too. Come on. Panel retrofit they have a retrofit kit, kit too? <laughs> oh, you got it, baby. You got to go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot com. Keep it easy. Light made easy with Keystone. And, of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Where is it? There it is. Yep, neild.org. And that's it. We got Al Luzinski coming out on the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Welcome back, Al Luzinski. How are you? Great, guys. Good to see you. Say hi to Greg Eric. Greg, happy New Year to you. Yeah, you too, Al. Thanks a lot. Hey, we're going to... Talk about a number of things today, but one thing I was on your website, inside.lighting, and I saw follow us, and on the bottom, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and then it had MySpace. Oh, like, okay, okay, Al, you haven't updated anything, but then I saw what you did. Maybe Scott will do a better version, but you, <laughs> you have a nice link that. Sorry, I can't get it. That's so crazy. I clicked the same thing, the guy with the hockey haircut and the mustache. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so crazy. I hit the same button. I'm like, MySpace? What is this guy doing? <laughs> you know, we, we, we try to be mostly serious on inside lighting, but once in a while, we like to throw a little bit of irreverence in there. So if you're examining the website close enough to see that very obscure MySpace reference at the bottom, we're going to reward you with a guy with a mullet, or as you Canadians say, a hockey haircut. And uh, we get some good comments on some of those little things we sprinkle in there. So thanks for noticing. <laughs> you know, the hockey haircut is still quite popular in Canada. There's guys that rock it all the time. Yeah. Well, I, I got to think that the pandemic is causing people to get creative with hair as well. So it's it's probably like a, a, an ongoing trend that maybe we should address in the lighting industry as well. <laughs> <laughs> so inside lighting, we talked to you before in the past. Give us, a, a again, a rundown. Why did you... Or you started it in 2016. Why? What was the main reason? What made you say you know, I have I to w- do this? Thing? I was a factory guy for a lot of years, and one of the things that always drove me nuts was not being able to figure out who the major players are as far as agents are in some of the major U.S. and Canada marketplaces. So um, it's usually public information: who's the Acuity rep, who's the Hubble rep, the Cooper rep, etc. 
But um, it was a Easter egg hunt trying to go across the internet, figuring out who the, the, the different reps were in the different marketplaces. So that's what started it. And then uh, in 2020, it was uh, a year where I invested a lot more time, attention, and resources into it. And in addition to that directory of who the major players are, we provide news, information, resources, including, you know, we have a section on UV lighting and jobs and other things. So we're just trying to be a resource for the lighting industry to help lighting people do their jobs better, quicker, and easier. Hmm. So is this is this your full time job now? Yeah, you know, I um, it's the most public facing thing that I do with Inside Lighting, but um, I actually do some consulting for private clients. So that's really actually where I make more of my coin and my living. But from a from a standpoint of uh, what's what's the most fun part of my job, um, it's this. And and frankly, at some point, I expect it to be a large enough media situation where uh, it will be full time and hopefully involving more than just one person and some some outsourced contractors that I use. The go. consulting, no, I, the consulting arm, the consulting side. What type of consulting do you provide to? I mean, it's a good advertisement. What kind of consulting do you provide for people? Yeah, sure. So it's it's really I, I get involved with companies that uh, that have either a special project or um, or a major long term objective. So a lot of times companies use consultants because they want to get you know a third party voice that's going to be honest with them and 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 do a project that maybe they don't have the bandwidth or expertise to do. So that's where I get involved with my manufacturing background in sales and marketing and operations. Uh, uh, experience, I'm able to bring some unique things to the table, whether it's uh, one of my past clients that had more of a residential focus and wanted to transition more to commercial or a European company that wants to understand how they can immerse themselves and get more involved in the U.S. or, or North American marketplace. Um, and so, yeah, I get involved with market research and uh, sales deployment opportunities and, 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 you know, ways to help any usually manufacturer or any lighting related company assess the marketplace and figure out their, their spots where they can grow and, and leverage their strengths into a, a larger um, portion of the business for them. Have you done any business with Chinese companies? Um, to this point, no, I have not. Yeah, you know, because the Get a Grip on Lighting part of the podcast had an interesting, has an interesting sort of beginning. Um, Greg and I went to China in 2014 on like a junket. And yeah. um, uh, it's a junket is what you would probably call it, eh, Greg? Okay. Pretty much a junket. Yeah. I would and, say so, no real plan. Yeah, just going over to factories and yeah. just go, to going around and, and this sort of thing. And what we realized was that, listen, if you guys just did everything we told you to do, you guys would kill it. Like they're trying, like basic things. Even they're trying to come to, to the United States with things in millimeters. It's like, buddy, yeah, that's not going to fly. <laughs> or milky white was the name of the fluorescent tube color. Right? I mean, or the the uh, LED T eight T LED tube color. And so we're like, you should just hire us, and then all your problems will be solved. But it didn't fly. I, we were totally shocked. Actually, it was uh, it was unbelievable to us. But when you say uh, it didn't fly. The, the the companies weren't interested in hiring you, or they they the, the they, did you ever get to a proposal stage, or did you ever provide some, yeah. some basic consulting? Or? Yeah, we no, yeah, we we, we offer. Yeah, go ahead, Greg. Oh, sorry, we put together a whole thing, you know, like a whole company basically, and 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 put the, and started reaching out to companies and and met with a few or talked to a few, and it just it couldn't it couldn't go. They didn't trust us, or I don't know what it was, Mike. What do you think? I mean, it was like a language thing, you know, that was difficult. I don't know if there's a consulting culture in China. So America has a really strong consulting culture that's not as strong in Canada. 
So Canadian companies are much less likely to hire consultants, actually. So the consulting culture in the States is very strong. I mean, that goes back to Drucker and a bunch of other things. And U.S. companies being a lot larger and being able to afford higher fees and stuff like that. But yeah, generally the consulting culture in, in the U.S. is a lot stronger than it would be in even Europe or, or in, in Asia. Um, but in Asia, I, I think in China, it's a non-existent thing. Like to hire an outsider to tell you what to do is, you know, perhaps culturally faux pas or something like that is, would be my takeaway because it was so obvious. Remember that guy that took us out for dinner that didn't speak any English and we went around and he took mm-hmm. us everywhere and we're like, for sure, this guy's going to hire us. And no, yeah. he, he, he was just hoping that we would buy from him at the end of the day. And, um, I don't know. It just was... It's, uh, I don't know. It's just not a culture of consultants there. So that's why I think it failed. Yeah. A lot of those companies might not have the budget, like you said, or they, they just think that using Google translate for a spec sheet it works when, and then they end up having, you know, milky white as a descriptor and not, uh, not some of the other important parts that, uh, that add up there. But For sure. Yeah. So diving into 2021, you, you have on your, um, new site. 11.5 predictions. At first it was 10.5. Now it's 11.5 predictions for 2021. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I started with 10 and a half. Um, and then I realized that the first guy to send me predictions, I just left them out. So apologies to BIOS Lighting's Mark McClear. I left him off the list. So we threw him back in there. And uh, so now we're up to 11.5. So, you know, just like, like, just like you guys, we try to promise less and deliver more. So you get 11 and a half predictions for the price of 10 and a half on inside lighting. <laughs> but uh, but we're, we're real happy with the diversity that we had. Um, we had you know, people that, that were from you know, manufacturing and distribution, as well as design, uh, the DLC and the IES spoke up. So, so it was really a good diverse crowd and some, some interesting insights that were shared there. And we even had, um, we even had this one um, sometimes irreverent, but always intelligent uh, podcaster by the name of Michael that, uh, that, that shared some insights as well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, like I was that. gonna, I was gonna wear my mask to start the show. <laughs> uh, for those listening to the podcast, Michael just put his mask over his eyes, trying to hide. But Michael, you had some serious things to say about light pollution. What's up with your prediction for 2021? Yeah, you know what? Um, so we uh, that nailed um, the association that I'm a part of and that Greg's a part of um, has signed a uh, memorandum of understanding with the International Dark Sky Association. Yeah, to promote the five principles of responsible outdoor lighting. And, and we've been working very hard on this issue over the last, see, going back to April, Greg, we've been working on the deal. We inked mm-hmm. it in November, I think. And yeah. so we, we spent a lot of time working on it and just researching it. And the, the, when you, when you look retroactively just at what my company has done as a, as a small Canadian lighting distributor and contractor, um, we've created so like, we've gone from a situation where people were unaware, becoming aware of dark sky issues, say in 2008 to 2009, it started to gain some traction. I have some old product in my warehouse, CFL wall packs that are full cutoff that have a dark sky logo on the side and stuff like that, just from projects that didn't, you know, had an extra fixture in that we've had it on the shelf back there for years. And, and then it was completely obliterated by lumens per watt. The, the, the conversation totally changed and they, that, that problem went into the back burner, not even the back burner, just unrecognizable. Nobody even cared about it. There was no, 
um, acknowledgement of it. But the science didn't stop. And the people studying it didn't stop studying it. And the the lack, the, the, the I don't know what the right way to put it is, but the light pollution is pollution. It's not a, it's not a simile. Okay, that's not a simile to make people understand it better. Light pollution is pollution and it causes all manner of problems for, for living things. Um, and all living things are connected. So if you cause problems, like for example, they, they're talking this one um, uh, uh, scientist we, we interviewed last, last year, which is a couple of weeks ago now, but Dr. Zibla Schroer is her name in Germany. She studies how fish... Um, small little fish eat the little tiny slime that's on rocks on the shore and how light pollution causes those fish to leave that area, killing that little slimy stuff and having them swim out deeper in the water and being preyed, preyed upon more by larger fish. And so you may think, well, who cares about that, right? I don't care. The fish can swim over there, right? The birds can fly over here. But these sort of things have impacts that slowly creep up on us over time. The second thing is that glare and light trespass is a massive issue in my neighborhood and sure many other people's neighborhoods where you have LED lights that are flickering on and off every, you know, whatever, 60 times a second because they're on, they're not, they're, they're from 2017 or whatever. And they're pointed right, they're, they're, the light's going right into people's bedroom windows. And this is causing problems. And the whole thing was paid for by rate-based incentive programs. And so the industry has kind of hidden from this issue, probably starting, I'm giving you a long answer here, Al, but starting in 2017, they've hidden from the issue. And now we saw the deal between the IES and the IDA come out with the five principles of responsible outdoor lighting. And, you know, there's going to need to be some reflection. And, and my, I started the, the shows that we did on Dark Sky with um, Get a Grip on Lighting and Jane Slade and, and, and that with the song Don't Look Back in Anger by, by Oasis because it's time to just say we messed up. We screwed up as an industry. We got it wrong. And have the courage of our convictions to say that and just say now it's time to fix it. Why should we do this, Al? Well, you can go through all other reasons about how it's right and we need to be honest and all, the, all those other kind of things that people say, but because it's going to start another lighting boom, the dark sky lighting boom. And that's where this industry needs to go. And the final point, and I'll let Greg get back to everybody else's predictions on this, on the, on, on, on the, um, on the list. But the final point is that, uh, oh, I lost my final point now. What was it? The final, oh, the final point is that um, the industry can solve a legitimate environmental problem. It's the only industry capable of doing that right now. Every other environmental problem we have is largely unsolvable. Can't fix it. It's, we're kind of stuck with coal and gas and all, uh, you know, electricity, although there's certain jurisdictions that are clean and other ones that aren't. But those are long-term infrastructure, billions of dollars of infrastructure investments and science we don't have yet. We can solve this problem right now, Alexinski. Oh, that's uh, that's good insight, strong comments, and I think when when we look at um, just kind of the, the 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 so what part of that is so what do we do as lighting distributors, as lighting manufacturers, lighting designers, and and lighting professionals to help uh, inspire that change, Michael? What do what do we do in 2021 if we're talking about predictions? How can we affect that change as responsible lighting people? 
Well, I can tell you what the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors is going to do. Okay. Yeah. Not what we can do conceptually, but what we're actually going to do. And the first step is um, we are going to create an education program um, in our LS Evolve series, which will be approved by the International Dark Sky Association. Okay. And we'll set out not ethically or morally, there will be a little bit of that in there, but most of it will be what type of products are dark sky approved? What type of applications should they be used in? How do you install them? How do you commission them? How should they be controlled? Um, how do you sell them? Uh, that's the first part. That's the first part of our strategy. And so that's, that's what we're going to do. And we're going to train. So we're going to start, they're going to, IDA is working from the top, talking to politicians and trying to get ordinances and these types of things. And we're going to work from the bottom so that when the ordinances come out, there's people that know how to deliver that at the other end. And so that's what Nailed is going to do. Um, and we're also, should we just say it, Greg? Well, we, we, you are doing one podcast a month for Getting Up on Lighting. That's, that's right. Dark Sky Focus. Uh, yeah, that's Dark Sky. There's going to be one podcast coming out that's Dark Sky Focus. There's going to be uh, another hot blast between Greg and I on LightTed about the Dark Sky and the issues surrounding it. So we're going to be putting out a lot of media and education in order to further those goals for the industry. So, yeah. And I more. Mean, and more. more we got out. other things <laughs> that we are, we're not ready to release yet, but that are even bigger than that. So we got a lot cooking. That's exciting. That's good. And are those those wall packs, those CFL wall packs you mentioned, are they part of your solution? Or are they gonna... <laughs> I got two of them out there on the dollar bin if you want them. Al, he needs to get rid of them. So we got to find a way. Right. That's what all this is about. <laughs> Perfect. Excess inventory. Let's do it. <laughs> so the other stuff you've got going. So that's that's one big one that, you know, Mike, Mike brought up. He didn't even tell me he was doing it. I had to read it myself and say, oh, look at you. Big shot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Going in the order here a little bit, you said uh, in the post-COVID-19 era, I believe workspace environments will evolve to be more comparable to hospitality gathering spaces. Consequently, I see an explosion of dynamic color tuning systems being specified by lighting designers. What are your thoughts on that, Al, Mike? How do we want to handle that? Yeah, I'll comment first. So, so this was a comment from Stephen Rosen, who's a fellow of the IALD, very well-respected lighting designer out of Boston. And so, so as we comment on any of these things, you know, these, these comments belong to the individual that stated it. And so now we're just kind of giving our own personal spins on it. So I'm sure Stephen would elaborate a lot differently than I'm about to, but, uh, but it, it actually causes us to think about, um, the, 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 he mentions the work environment. And if you've been to like a, a courtyard by Marriott, uh, five years ago and compared to what, what the lobby looks like today, or even like an outback steakhouse or a lot of these chain restaurant steakhouses where you used to have individual four tops and six tops. And now you walk in and you can sit with 16 different people. And, 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 and uh, like when I hear Stephen's comments, I think about that more collaborative workspace, a more dynamic workspace that's not someone with a desk drawer full of papers and, and personal belongings and a file cabinet with their other stuff in it. It's going to be like maybe you don't have an assigned desk and there's already some workspaces that are like that. But I, I feel like that's what, what part of this one, this prediction is. And the whole commercial office sector is, a, is another thing, because I don't know if there's a lot of short-term growth in that sector right now, given all the, uh, the, the challenges that we're having with pandemic-related construction and workspaces and people working remotely. But, but as we look at people coming into the office, and rather than going to their assigned desk, it might be that you just go to the first open desk, and you plop your, your laptop up there, and you, you do your things from there, and you have more collaborative spaces. And he mentioned dynamic lighting, so that could add you know, splashes of color and 
and things like that as as barriers to entry for for doing dynamic lighting is much less than it used to be. You don't have to have um, you know super expensive five six figure control systems to provide color changing and and uh, s- sophisticated control aspects to that. So. That's my two cents on that, but um, open to hear what, what you guys think about what Stephen said about dynamic lighting and the new office of the future. Yeah, so on the, I'll, I'll take the new office of the future. I had a meeting this morning with my sales staff, and one of them was talking about a customer of theirs that's in a downtown tower in Minneapolis, and they have five floors of this skyscraper building, and and that's where all their office is. They just got notice and, you know, after these last nine months, they realized they didn't need all that space. So now they're renegotiating their lease, going down to two floors and doing very similar to what you're saying in in terms of shared workspaces. So there's good and bad in that. You know, good is that there might be opportunity from the lighting standpoint where now you got to redesign the space. So you need new light fixtures to redesign it, hopefully. And the bad is it's a lot less space to redesign. I think my take, yeah, my, my take on it is that, that I think that's largely a lighting designer's issue. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, for, for distributors, uh, I think they're going to continue largely selling what they sell. And then they'll assign a person in their office that's in charge of color tuning and stuff like that. And that will, I, because we, lear- we work largely in, in, in um, existing spaces with MRO and then projects based on, on, on energy efficiency and on, um, uh, on cost savings. Right. So I don't, I don't see a a massive change to that for the distributor side of it or the contractor side of it, but I think lighting designers, absolutely new jobs, new construction, there's going to be tons of color tuning there for sure. Yeah. Good. On to the next one. Um, we should reference. That's a good point, Al. This is Craig Kassler of Cooper. Yeah, he's the president of Cooper Lighting Solutions. All right. He said it's going to be slow, uh, market recovery, and 40% of global. I'm just trying to sum it up here. Is there, Al, do you have a good summary of it? Maybe a better year ago. Yeah, I think, you know, for the, the Craig's comments, and it's, a, it's about a paragraph. So the, the, the two or three points I take out of it is he expects the, the market recovery from 2019 levels to, to be a slow recovery, um, taking possibly until 2023 or later to get back to 2019 level. So that's three, four year recovery. And then um, he also believes the rebound from COVID-19 will offer growth and market share opportunities for manufacturers who can commercialize and scale. Um, so one of the things you look at there is, okay, so 2019, you know, before Cooper Lighting Solutions was purchased by Signify, they were about a $1.6 billion business unit. Now their their numbers are just uh, kind of combined into Signify. So it's hard to pull out exactly what, what Craig's portion of it that he oversees is. But nonetheless, when you, when you think about it taking three, four years, that's kind of cons- that's kind of consistent with what a lot of companies saw back in the 2008, 2009 Great Recession, but taking a while. But what I would add to that is, is that obviously a company like Cooper Lighting Solutions, it's diversified throughout the, the different types of projects and the different types of products that it offers. So you have, you know, a very popular residential downlight brand like Halo. I don't know this, but I'm imagining that that, that because residential sales at, at Home Depot and other resi-focused uh, stores are, are doing pretty well amidst this pandemic challenge, Home Depot sales were up 23% and 24% the last two quarters, that, that that type of product category is 
doing okay. Um, but then you have some of the more commercial and industrial focused brands and some of the more complex commercial control systems and things like that, which, which might have taken a large step back in 2020, and that will continue. The other part of that context that I would add to that is that when you look at Signify, this large global behemoth um, that's, it's, you know, formerly known as Philips in our industry and a spun off, um, it's had like seven consecutive years of negative revenue growth, meaning it, the revenues get smaller and smaller and smaller each of seven years in a row. So so when you have that kind of trajectory because of the way that the lighting industry has changed and Signify has gone about um, its intelligent moves to, to get leaner and then and then refocus, um, it might also, that kind of momentum might might also take a little bit while, while to dig. But when you look at some of the smaller players, um, you know, there's companies that are focused on some good vertical markets, whether it's Resi or, or um, retrofits or energy sales or um, even in healthcare or, or some other niches, when you're small and nimble, you might have an opportunity to grow. And there's others that aren't tied to a distribution chain where they, they can't be um, upsetting a, a, a lighting distributor or an electrical distributor, and they can find ways to, to sell direct and go around that. I know you guys don't want to hear that, but there's smaller companies that aren't as tied into the, the, the traditional channels that they can maybe be a little bit more creative or disruptive, depending on how we want to label it, that can allow them to grow in different directions. So just because Cooper Lighting Solutions and Signify are projecting slower growth, um, in my opinion, doesn't mean that that's, um, you know, kind of a, a three to four year turn for the entire industry. I think there's pockets that can recover quicker and, and maybe some that, that, that won't recover and maybe some that'll take longer than what, what uh, Kassler suggested. I think Craig's what's I think Craig's talking about a very diversified business, right? So he he's looking at a a very big portfolio of different things that he's got going on, and and he's he's prognosticating because he's got a, a big portfolio. And I think within those different segments, like you mentioned, Home Depot being up, and there's different areas that are going to grow, and um, yeah, but I think I think overall he's he's probably right. Um, on an, uh, looking at the entire industry, um, you know, hopefully he's wrong, but um, he wants to be wrong. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure he'd love to defy expectations, but you know, he's looking at a massive company with diversified portfolio. So he's say, making his prognostication. And I think he's right. Uh, Mark McClear, Greg. Yeah. So uh, sum that one up. He, he is looking. That's from BIOS Lighting. He is looking, saying that human centric lighting will have some recommended practices, or there'll be more defined on what it is. And Michael and I have been talking about that for years is we can't sell it until you can define it, until you can make sense out of it. And so we need that to sell it. Is that really going to happen? Well, I think the jury's out, right? And, and I think, uh, I, I think, I love optimistic opinions more than I more than I like pessimistic opinions, but the opinions I appreciate most are the realistic ones. So do I think there's realistically going to be widespread adoption of human-centric lighting principles among the design and user uh, crowd as well as just, just the general stakeholders in lighting? I don't think there's going to be general widespread adoption, but I think, you know, this is not a new topic. This has been 10 plus years in the making of it really bubbling up to, to lots of conversations like this. So I think the, the adoption will continue. I think the well-building standard is going to help drive that type of adoption, just like we were talking earlier about dark sky stuff. I think bringing that awareness up, but not just awareness, but but forcing practices that, that comply with well-building standards as well as some of the barriers to entry with, with costs of doing not just color tuning. This is more 
you know, using the right spectra of light, depending on time of day for some of the occupants. And the approach that BIOS is taking is real interesting. Just like if you have a PC, you might have an Intel chip and a, a sticker on your laptop that says Intel inside. That's what BIOS, uh, one of their major you know, paths to market is to be a kind of an ingredient marketing where they're a component of 30 plus manufacturers of, of human centric lighting. So I think it's a smart approach to get the, kind of their message out, um, not just with on a BIOS platform, but but by having 30 influential manufacturing partners that span the gamut from high end specification to more everyday uh, commercial type fixtures that can help spread that word as well. So I think that's a huge growth area over the next five to 10 years. And we'll, we'll see the ball move forward in 2021. Yeah, we're ready for it, Mike. You got that knife sharpened. Swing to the trees, baby. Well, the problem with the with the with that standards are what are, are what is needed, but I don't think they have the information yet to make standards. Right. Right. So it's like you'd be making standards and then having to change them and having to change them, and that's what we've gone through with energy efficiency, and it causes a lot of problems because you have legacy technology that no longer conforms to the standards, and it was only installed two or three years ago. You know, and oh yeah, now you remember that healthy system we told you you had, hey, it's not so healthy actually, time to change it out again. And I think it's it's fun to say that with Dark Sky when you're looking at it and everything is wrong and we know exactly what to do. But when um, when something comes up like that, yeah, we think it's the best, we should write a standard and then we got to change that standard and change that standard. I think you lose the public's faith in in the industry and then it becomes more like snake oil again this is going to solve your seasonal affective disorder yeah that's right get that full spectrum going people have people kind of like you know it's what's the scam today you know what i mean um you can get that so we got we got to have the scientists come out and say this is for sure for all people in all walks of life no matter what the color of their skin is, no matter where their ethnic region they hail from, because it's kind of turning out that people that are from northern regions of the world actually have different needs than people from more places closer to the equator, which would be another prediction is that actually human-centric lighting is, is more diverse than one solution. And we don't want to be making a European centric lighting now, do we all right? And I think that dovetails perfectly into Edward Bartholomew's point, which was that the lighting profession will be transformed by the social changes that are taking place in our society. I predict that lighting along with architecture and design professions will be more diverse, equitable and inclusive reflecting the communities that it serves and a more, and that a more diverse profession will generate more creative and responsive lighting solutions. I don't know. What do you think, Al? Well, I, I, um, Edward's been a great proponent of speaking out about how to help the lighting industry and the design profession become better at being more inclusive and um, you know, equality type type initiatives. So, from that perspective, I I, I would frame it in a way where again, it's not going to all move forward and change miraculously in 2021. If you look historically speaking, it takes a generation for there to be a real huge step forward in acceptance and racial equality and those types of tolerance measures. But I think the events of the last uh, you know, six to 10 months have shown us that it's accelerated that conversation where, where now you know, the, the three of us talking here, we're, we're three white Caucasians that were born in North America. And you know, it's an unearned privilege. But, um, but you know, when, you, when you look at people who, who don't necessarily have that same uh, you know, 
diverse diversification or makeup uh, as, as far as being a minority, um, those people have, have a tougher road to hoe. I've never had to drive through a neighborhood and be worried about getting pulled over for no reason, whereas uh, that's a reality for a lot of people in this country. So when you bring that down to the industry, um, Edward's in the design field. And when, when you look at um, architectural lighting design, that could be considered a subset of architecture. And even the AIA, the American Institute of Architects, um, I think the last time I saw their, their membership data, uh, it's you know, it's like 80 plus percent uh, of of architects are are male, and you look at um, I, th- I believe less than 10 percent are African American. So so there's in the design profession there tends to be a lack of diversity. So what can we do? If you think about hiring practices, um, if you're hiring people out of school, maybe we we um, in our rotation of of you know, eight to 10 colleges that these large companies go to, maybe they, they put a historically black college on that interview agenda to make sure that they're, they're, they're you know, interviewing the cream of the crop at those universities and colleges to, to bring some of those people in and to have some sort of uh, programs within, within uh, various manufacturers and distributors, et cetera, where you create a path of advancement and a, an opportunity for everyone to, to hop onto those equally. And I think also some of the social things that have happened over the last year is going to cause a lot of people who in the past, they were maybe their default when they saw something that was wrong, they would just be quiet and not kind of raise a stir about it and just forget it happened. I think now I think some people, not all people, but some people are more prone to speak up when they see something wrong rather than just keep their mouth shut. So I do, I do think we're going to see um, that this is more of a, a movement than a movement. Um, it will take time, but I, I do think we'll see some advances, and I'm, I'm hopeful that that will be the case. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast is the place to dive deep into these kinds of issues. Um, it's just not the place for it. But what I would say is this, is that, first of all, change is not necessarily good. So the word change has somehow been tacked on to meaning that change is good. And change is not always good. Progress, meaning change for the better, is good. But change for the sake of change is not necessarily good. And the other thing I would add to that is every social intervention that we do, everything we do socially to intervene becomes the next problem. And that's the, that's the law of social science, is that anything you do to intervene um, and try to predict the future or try to create change creates all manner of unintended consequences that you could not predict. And it may, you may achieve whatever numbers that you wish to achieve, like 50-50 women and men, Alaskan crab fishermen, if that's what you want, crab fisher people, you know, if that's what you're after, um, or, you know, 50-50 female and men loggers, um, you know, if that's what you're after, then you could probably do that if you want. Um, but the reality is every social intervention we take is, um, always becomes the next problem to solve. So change needs to be brought back to being a benign term. And we got to look at things that actually help people as opposed to platitudes, which a lot of this stuff to me strikes me as when I hear it, platitude, um, you know, reading the statements on people's websites about diversity. So you wrote something on paper, you wrote something on the internet. Who cares, buddy? Um, what, what is the actual outcome? How do you measure it? When do you know that you've gotten there? Um, you know, but there's all manner of problems involved in that. And so, you know, even though I probably could unpack it intelligently, I'm not going to because it's not the place to do it. But, you know, I think that there, you know, in a sense, 
there is uh, a zeitgeist in this direction, and I think it needs to be tracked and followed intelligently. Greg, do you have any thoughts? I don't. I think you guys handled that one pretty well. I want to get on to the, <laughs> the next couple here. Um, UVC lighting, you had two. You had two comments. You had uh, Rudy Jadwet, uh, who was on the negative side a little bit, saying it's going to not increase. The sales of UVC and germicidal lighting are not going to increase uh, because of misleading claims by manufacturers and regulatory issues, things like that. And then you had Joseph is it Melchors from Cooper. Who said yeah, Joe Melchor is the VP of sales yeah. for Cooper, yep. And it's going to continue to gain traction. So what's going to happen? Al, what is your opinion on UVC and germicidal lighting? Is it, and I asked this question a couple of times on recent podcasts, is it a fad or is it, is it something that's here to stay? Is it going to, where are we at with it? Well, I think um, it's possible for both Ruby and for Joe to be right. Cause Ruby said that it's not going to grow substantially. And Joe said that we're going to see traction. So I think there's sure. going to be, as people return to work or to school or these other public buildings, um, there's going to be a demand by the occupants of the buildings that they don't want to return unless they have some sort of assurance that it's a healthy building. And that's going to come down to sanitizing and other things that are outside of lighting. But but UVC will be part of that discussion. And mm -hmm. I think one thing is I've, is I've watched the UVC and I pay close attention to it. Um, a lot of those portable, movable fixtures that were going into hotel rooms and subway cars that was an immediate response when things were on lockdown and people were really at high alert status on this 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 uh, very contagious um, pandemic situation. And as we look at at, at settling in now, and we, we kind of understand where, where the, the how how this is transferred from one to another, and we have vaccines on the way, and um, I, I think it's going to be more of a permanently installed solution. I think we're going to see UVC disinfection or healthy lighting where it's a, 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 something that looks like a, I mean, there's, there's companies now that have these types of things where it looks like a fire alarm detector on the wall that air passes through and there's a UVC chamber inside that disinfects it, or there's actual lighting that's at a certain bandwidth that disinfects light uh, or that, that, that disinfects spaces. So I think the long-term, the medium to long-term is to see installations of permanently installed fixtures and fewer of those. And one, one example of this is acuity lighting. Um, or Acuity Brands Lighting, when they've, they've announced three partnerships in 2020, one with Ushio, one with Puro, with the violence defense um, by proxy, and then the third one was something called UV Angel. And UV Angel is a, a light disinfection thing that pops into a ceiling panel and does those types of things. So so you look at um, where we're headed, I think there's going to be an expansion into parallel areas where these, these things might not be light fixtures illuminating spaces, but there's UV light inside that helps disinfect spaces. But I, th I think to, to Ruby's point, there's, there's, it's kind of a wild west of, of safety and understanding and application, proper application of it, where you have a building owner um, nearby here that, that runs a major retail center. And they were asking me about um, light UV disinfection to put in the elevators and other spaces. And the stuff that was being sold to them was crap, but they didn't know it was crap. It's UVC sure. and it has lots of prices on a, lots of promises on a spec sheet. And let's go and spend lots of money on that, and then, and then you, you you buy something that just doesn't do the job, or it's 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 unsafe or something there. So I think there uh, there's work in play to have some of this regulated, but I I, I do think there's going to grow. But to Ruby's point, it's going to be measured until there's some sort of of standard and way to police the enforcement and, and application of it. I'm going to break it up. I think it needs to be broken up. I think it needs to be broken up into surface disinfection and air disin upper air disinfection. Okay? 
So surface disinfection in places where he, that humans occupy is largely unproven. Nobody knows if it works. You know, uh, they know they have science that proves that it does things or whatever, this sort of thing. So you have, I think what, what, I think both of their points point directly to surface disinfection using UVC. Upper air disinfection is proven and should be deployed in airports and train stations and all these kinds of places. And it should also be deployed with hygiene theater. And what I mean by that is like when, when people were deploying these roll around stations and the wands, there was a theatrical element to this. There was, we are pushing this magic cart of COVID killer into the train. Look at us. And now we're running away from it, plugging it in. And then we're going to run back in and plug it out. And after 20 minutes, all of all the COVID is gone, man. It's all gone. I promise you. It's all gone. We, we blasted it. We radiated it. It's gone. Yeah. But there's a sense in which that was a form of theater. It was a theatrical production that people did. But I think we need to take that seriously. Because if the industry can give people reassurance, real reassurance, that the air in that space is being disinfected by this uh, light fixture, and that bathroom door in the airport is locked for 30 seconds, while the reverse occupancy sensor turns on the surface disinfection in that toilet and literally burns away all the bacteria that's in that area. Because there's ap it's application by application, right? You have to look at it. Like toilets in airports, I'd love it if there was a surface disinfection light in those things. Like really, come on, on your above urinals, you walk away, the, 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 um, the thing, you're never going to be exposed or radiated for, you know, for any significant amount of time. If you're, if you, you happen to walk in, the sensor clicks off or whatever, we can do that really effectively in certain applications, but we need to be theatrical about it. We need to show the world that we are cleaning the air. We are cleaning the surfaces. We are doing these things. When you see that green light, air is being purified right now. And people think I'm joking about this, but I'm 100% serious. If we can give people some assurance that something is being done. Because people are, listen, Al, I don't care about COVID-19, okay? I'm not afraid of it at all. I have no concern whatsoever. I've had COVID-19. My parents have had COVID-19 twice, and they're in their 76 and 75, okay? Twice they've had it, all right? Tr Toronto's like a COVID-19 mixer. Anyway. My point being this, is that some people in our society are legitimately afraid of this, of all viruses, and their germophobic instincts have been made substantially worse, exponentially worse, in fact, where they don't want to get on a plane, they don't want to get on a bus, they don't want to get on a train. We need to be theatrical about this as, w as well as practical. So we need solutions that work, but when they do work, we need to shine them and show them off to the world that this is working. So that people can then move back into these spaces. And that's my, my take on it. And I think, it, I think if we take seriously the theater, and, and I don't know if that's the right word, term, Greg, Eric, hygiene theater, but we yeah. need whatever term we want, because people don't like it because they think we're pretending, but I don't know what other term to use, but we need to take that seriously. Whatever we're going to call that, there's got to be a better word for it. But if we, if we could call to do that and show people that something's being done, then you would see an increase in people's willingness to go back to the office, to go to the, um, to go to the airport or wherever else they want to go. There's my take. All right. So we'll see. 
We'll keep keep on that as we go. Yeah, Tim Latrish, Lacitra, Lacitra, man. I said it right, Lacitra. From the IS, just saying everything's going to connect more as an industry. Is that about the gist of it? Well, he also cites that you know 2020 taught us the ways we can collaborate without being in person, and that um, we learn we can learn remotely and more effectively, and still and still have these types of partnerships without necessarily being face to face. Or some of the other comments that that I believe Tim was trying to express. So I, I think that's that's true, and I think just taking a step back, I think you know, Tim may have wrote that with the the IES Lighting Library, which is this great online resource of of information that's available through the IES now. Um, but there's also, you know, your, your bigger picture where, you know, just like you think of, I remember when I was a kid, I used to call my dad at the office, not a lot. Um, and, and he didn't have a sophisticated, uh, phone system at work. And, you know, when I asked for my dad, they're like, he's in a meeting. I'm like, all right, I'll just call him later. But I used to think my dad was really important because dad was in a meeting. Right. And then I became like part of the business world. And I learned that a lot of these meetings, they're not important. It's just a time waste and a time suck. And so I think what we've what we've definitely learned throughout the year is that, first of all, we don't have to travel 20 miles or 200 or 2,000 miles to go to every single meeting that we're invited to. We can do it more effectively and save a ton of time by doing it remotely. We don't have to, for people that collect CEUs and, and, and other training, if, um, you know, if you, if you bring, add a new manufacturer to your line card and you have to get trained, it's always more effective to see, touch, and feel the samples and, and shake the person's hand who's doing the training. But in the absence of that, you can have some effective online training if the online training is designed well and implemented well, because there's a lot of online training that stinks. And then when, when you think about the collaboration, I think it, it's also going to allow us to, to cover more ground. Now, if I'm a distributor, um, you know, you, you typically operate within your local trading area. You don't go you know, you don't travel a thousand miles typically for a sales call. So you, you, you drive locally. But if you're if you have a larger territory or a larger uh, bandwidth to travel, like when I look at the U.S. market, there's um, there's two small markets uh, that, that, that I always like to compare. One of them is northern New England, the three states of Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont. The other one is the entire state of Oklahoma. They're about the same population. They're about the same market size as far as buying power for commercial lighting products. Um, but one is much easier to cover than the other. One is, is, is much more difficult, therefore making it more costly. And the one that's easier to cover is Oklahoma. You have Oklahoma City, and then right up I-44, you have Tulsa. Those are the two largest cities in Oklahoma. And if you cover those two markets, you've captured you know 75% or more of the Oklahoma market. But for the similar size market in Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, you got to go to Portland, Maine, Nashville, New Hampshire, Rutland, Vermont, Burlington, Vermont, and, and, and drive all over creation through these rural areas to cover the same ground. But now what 2020 has shown us is that not only is it feasible and possible to cover that, but customers are more accepting to it. They actually might appreciate it more to be called on. Um, remotely rather than in person. I think you still got to have those in-person job meetings. If you're going through a punch list on a job site, you got to visit the job site. But there's a lot of stuff that can be done remotely, and and that's my take on it. Now I'm interested in your perspectives, guys, because both of you are you know in, in the distribution business and have more of a local focus than a than a widespread multi-province or state focus. Um, so what have you seen to be the most effective parts of this remote? interaction with your vendors and your customers and, and what lessons can we take moving forward from your perspective? I'll go first. So as a distributor here and, you know, a majority of my business is in the Minneapolis market, which is pretty drivable and easy to get around and do all that. Honestly, not a lot has changed. 
from my standpoint, where I've, I'm still able to go to customers. I'm still going into facilities every single day. I'm still meeting with people just about every day. Uh, I have a mask on, but I, I'm still doing that all the time. So some businesses are closed or they might not be as available. Um, but for the most part, that part hasn't changed. I'm, I have done a couple Zoom meetings, which I've never done in the past, sales calls, proposals. And I actually like the one I did. It was kind of nice in a way. It seemed like it was more engaged and more focused than it would have been in person, oddly enough. Because, you know, in person, there's all the distractions when they're on the Zoom. They have the headset on. They're focused on their screen. Nothing else is around them distracting them. And it's an allocated time. I found that to, to work out well. So as a whole, though, not a lot of my business has, has changed because of it other than some people aren't at their office. Yeah, you still got to count the lights. Uh-huh. Right? They still want you to count the lights and make recommendations. So you still got to go to their site. Um, for me, we started this. We start, we went, when did we go video, Greg? 2017? 2018? Something like that? Yeah, something like that. As soon as we went video, um, I got all my vendors... And like my accountant, everybody just has to do Google Hangouts. Now meet now, Google Meet, but to do Google Hangouts. And our accountant, Joanne, Greg, was so nervous to do a Google Hangouts video call. I know she doesn't listen to the show, but I remember this when I first hired her as like a um, part-time CFO for me. Um, she, when I said, we're going to do a Google Meet. And said, because she would, she got to drive to your office. That's 45 minutes. I got to bill you for this. I said, no, 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 no. We're just going to do a Google Meet and screen share. It's like, what do you mean? You're going to see me on the internet? I'm like, yeah. Yeah, we're going to, I'm going to, we're going to see each other in a video call. She's like, I don't know about that. Like, that's weird. And it's not weird. It's great. It's so much easier. Right. And so it took two or three phone calls and a couple of, said, why don't you just click that little button there in the invite? Because you have a Gmail. I just click it. Yeah. See, now you can see me. See? Yeah. And she's like, it's not weird. I'm like, no, it's not weird. Right. And she's like, next thing you know, now years later, now she's like, yeah, yeah, all my clients are at Google Meet now before COVID. This is before COVID. So once you're introduced to this technology and you understand how it works and it's not weird, it's amazing. Okay. It's such a wonderful advancement. It's like Star Trek, Al. Remember Star Trek? We got the commander coming in, talking to uh, you know uh, Picard on the screen. It's amazing, and so there's nothing bad about all the electronic um, communication and video calls, Zoom meets, Hangout, whatever you want to call it. But um, you know, I think that all in all, we got to be able to go back and meet people again. And there's a combination there, and and we've improved and gotten better through this, but. I think we need to be in person too. And I think I echo your points with that. It's wonderful technology, but it's not the same. And it can be utilized in certain instances to achieve something, but it's not always great. So to Mike's point of, um, you know, or to your point about being online and the capabilities of all that, what about trade shows? You know, we, we've talked about that in the past and, and we, that's where a lot of us have met in the past. We used to see each other be in person. Are they coming back? What are we going to do about trade shows? Well, I hope to God they're coming back. It's a, it's, it's one of the highlights of my year in lighting is, is to reconnect with a lot of the people, but make new connections and see what's new and see the trends and attend the, the, the conferences and seminars. When we look at that, um, you know, a lot of the, the like, trade shows and conferences for the first half of 2021 
have been pushed back to the second half of 2021. So now you have mm-hmm. pretty much all the major trade shows and conferences happening in the second half of the year. In fact, in August, September, October, in a 12-week span, we have like seven or eight major national things happening, starting with the IAS annual conference in the first week of August, um, and then hitting Legication, Strategies in Light, also in August. And then eventually it's, it's the IAS Street and Area Light Conference, and then Light Fair in October. So it's a long stretch there. And two of those big events, the Legication and Light Fair, are happening in New York City in August and October, respectively. So as we're, as we're talking right now, it's January of 2021. For about a month, New York City hasn't allowed indoor dining. So even a restaurant with, with 30 seats, never mind 100 or 200 seats, any restaurant of any size, no indoor dining is allowed right now. So somehow in seven months, which is when education, I'm sorry, the, um, yeah, education is, is going to take place in about seven months from now. Are we going to be to the point where we can fill up the Hilton on, on Sixth Avenue with hundreds of lighting people converging upon this, this trade show and conference? I sure hope so. And I think it's, it's, it's possible and possibly even a, possibly even probable, but we're going to know in the next 90 days whether this seems feasible. So you look at the kind of the, the toll gates that need to happen. Um, you know, first of all, we need to get the vaccine not just distributed, but, but uh, implemented. And, um, and, and it's not me being um, trying to be like a Dr. Fauci, but I, I don't expect any state or local ordinances to allow a large gathering unless there's a certain amount of, of, of the population that's vaccinated or some sort of herd immunity that the public health officials say exists. So if we don't get to that level of a million people per day in the U.S. Um, soon, it might not be feasible to have a, a, a huge conference um, seven months from now. Now, if we do get there, then we're going to start to see things reopen like as restaurants. And then speaking of New York, the um, Broadway shows, the earliest they can reopen is June. That doesn't mean they're going to, but that's the earliest that they can reopen. And, you know, depending on ticket sales and practices and things like that, it might be later for them. But can you fill a theater with hundreds of people right now? No. Can you do that in June? Possibly. But will that be pushed out? So I think we'll see lots of those leading indicators show us whether these things will actually happen or not. Um, as we talk in January right now, I think it's possible. But um, but it's going to I think it all comes down to the public health officials saying how much the vaccine has been implemented and whether or not they can green light something like this, a, a gathering of this type or not. Yeah, I think I think what I what I notice most is like the new connection loss. Like we were meeting so many different people, wonderful people that you're just never going to meet online. I mean, we meet new scientists on the show and stuff like that, but we got to have a beer someday. We got to get together, you know, this kind of stuff. And it's like. You know, that's the problem. My wondering is how are they going to display this mark of the beast? That's my question. Like, how are you going to display <laughs> the fact that you've been vaccinated? You're going to wear like an armband or how are they going to do it? I've seen some pictures uh, vaccinated against COVID-19. Why don't they just put something on your right hand or your forehead? I mean, the, like it's getting a little bit creepy. Um, this, you know. This kind of thing, how they're going to be, you know, are you vaccinated or not? You know, uh, that's getting a little bit weird for me, but I guess we're going to get there. We're, we're going there and we're going to see what happens and it's going to be interesting at least. So, yeah. It will. It will. And just, just <laughs> one more point on that, Michael. I think, yeah, the human connection, nothing replaces the human connection. You can immediately get a feel for someone and whether you trust them or not, whether you, you, you like what they're saying and, and, um, and, 
can you imagine you guys are, are experienced guys i'm an experienced guy in the industry with, with accumulating contacts in this industry for many many years but if you're new if you're a 23 year old that's just kind of in the industry trying to build your rolodex or that's even an old term trying to build your contact list and connections a tr- <clears throat> excuse me a trade show is a great way to do that um, or a conference, but uh, but now without that, it's it's got to be harder for someone who's breaking in, especially if it's a customer facing role, to establish those connections. Um, a lot of us that are experienced can rely upon our our, our existing connections to to help us uh, through these rough waters. But um, it's especially hard, and I think that necessary for us to meet new people through these in person interactions that you mentioned. But the young people and- listening to this, Greg, this presents uh-huh. an opportunity for you. Do not get down. Figure out a way to get after it. You know what I mean? Like, let's not say you can't do anything. Hey, say, look, the old way is not available right now. So you got to do something different, Greg, Eric. Yeah. And, and, you know, different is, can be good as you talked about earlier, but the, um, the online conventions, virtual conventions don't work in my opinion. You know, we can keep trying it, but it's just not, not our long-term solution there. So we got to get back to in person in those. All right. Travis Jones from Wesco. There will be an acquisition or divestiture of a major conglomerate. Big words there. That's going to happen, right? More mergers, acquisitions this year, Al? Yeah, who the heck knows? I mean, that takes a crystal ball, but Travis might know something. He works for a large distributor, yeah. Wesco. They just acquired <laughs> Annex for last year. So so who's Wesco buying, guys? Who's it going to be? Yeah. True. <laughs> he, he's, I don't yeah. Know. He, he's flexing on the gram with that, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like it yeah, too. But yeah, I don't. I don't know. If, I don't. I don't know how much acquisition activity we'll see. But um, you can never predict that. It's it's a tough time to evaluate a, a you know, to, to put a value on a co- on a company right now if their sales are in the toilet. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you know, it'll it'll be fun to see. It happens every year, so we'll see what happens this year. You had uh, David Nokar from Federated Lighting. It kind of summed up a lot of what we've talked about. I don't think is there any different point there, Al? You see that than what we've discussed? No. Um, Tina Halfpenny, what did she get into? Yeah, so um, so Tina is the the executive director or CEO of the DLC Design Lights Consortium, which I think is one of Michael's favorite organizations. And uh, <laughs> so, so so she's saying that that government municipalities and building owners will be investing in systems based approaches to energy optimization. And she adds a a lot more comments to that. But um, recently sat down and interviewed Tina. Um, very interesting person with some real mm-hmm. intelligent perspectives on some yep. of the things. And um, she even said some things on diversity, which I encourage people to go see in my five big question series on inside lighting. But as it relates to this, I think when you look at what the DLC is doing, um, you know, I think the, the utility rebate programs were a big part of what helped us claw out of the last great recession with, um, you know, a lot of those commercial projects were were drying up. And then a lot of those utility funded rebates allowed us to, to, to still drive forward with some high base sales and tropper sales and other things. Um, so right now, one of the big areas that the, the DLC is focused on and, and that's frankly fueling a lot of the growth in the industry is controls. So when she says integrated systems, I think having um, those systems being driven and if there's utility partners of the DLC that can start rebating on uh, even more so than they have on some of the basics like occupancy sensors and daylighting, then um, that would be very exciting to see because any any utility incentive that's out there that, that – um, uh, appeals to lighting or saving energy is just going to help our industry. So uh, Tina has lots of business partners out there and she's in an important role. So I'm hoping that her prognostication is an accurate one because there could be some levers that we could all pull to help us um, drive forward with some, some, some growth in certain areas this year. 
She's also um, in a very tough position. I mean, there's a, a lot coming at her from different angles and pressure and stuff like that. And, you know, I don't envy her role. Um, Greg, you're on the advisory committee. What's the word over there? Yeah, very much so. What um, Al was talking, the controls, are, they're, they're looking at doing new processes there for the control side. They're also, they did talk, and I mentioned that to you, Mike, about Dark Sky too, um, and looking into that some. So really making, I think the key that, that I keep hearing across the calls that I'm on is uh, the push for quality of lighting. Now, what that means is, and everybody's mind is different, but the idea of that versus just energy efficiency, which is what it was in the past, I'm, I'm on board for. You know, let's get to good lighting instead of just efficient lighting. That makes and, sense. And we save the best for last. It's um, only half of an opinion. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's a full, good measure opinion. Uh, I want to start with the alternate sales channels because I think you're right. I think that. Um, as you know, they may not be open about it. They may not, you know, do it up front, but they may just find other ways to sell their products, especially people that have had a rough year and are sitting on a lot of inventory that's um, still relevant or not like, you know, you know, T-led tubes with aluminum back where you can see the diodes or whatever, but like, you know, something made in 2019 or something and they're sitting on loads. They're going to find other ways to unload that stuff. Um and I think you're right also about the, uh, you know, economy versions, keeping their production going so they can make more stuff. Um, and yeah, so Al, have you changed anything since you made this prediction? Oh, that's what I wonder. Well, I made this prediction that you're referring to. And yes, I called it a half a prediction because I felt uh, with that other list of VIPs from the industry we had that I wouldn't want to throw myself on that list and put myself <laughs> on equal footing. So um, so I put a half a prediction there from me personally, added my two cents on those two areas that you just touched on, Michael, which which uh, impacted the, the, the channel prediction as well as some of the, the, the adjacent product offerings. So um I'll start with the channel. So, so yeah, I think as, as mentioned earlier, the larger companies have trouble looking at alternate channels because they're already established and they don't want to disrupt their their real big channel partners. Um, but you know, when you look at when this pandemic started, um, every year for the last five or six years, and I'm not speaking lighting, just general consumer purchase behavior, um, online retail was just ticking up like a percent each year for the last five or six years. So it was growing, but but just steady and not not huge fast. But then since the pandemic, um, it's 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 spiked up like twelve percent. And Amazon is hiring, and 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 logistics companies are are, are dealing with more Amazon com uh, products than ever. So I think there's going to be people that have, like you said, maybe they're sitting on excess and obsolete inventory, or or just other ways that that they can reach the market that will allow them to uh, to do that. And, you know, just like that, we were talking earlier about trade shows and conferences and in person, the young person who might not have a lot of contacts, they might take to social media and they might have, you know, a thousand person following or a 20,000 person following, depending on what they do. And they might have virtual friends. So, so that, that type of mentality where someone that, that doesn't have a history and doesn't have, um, you know, an entrenchment in certain channels, they might be able to do some things uh, online or through other creative means to help drive those products to market. And then one of the things that I mentioned as far as um, exploring other product categories or adjacent products 
was one of them was to create economy versions. So if you have, you know, if you're a high-end manufacturer that's, um, that's, that's making linear fixtures that are, you know, $100 to $200 a foot, then, yeah, it might be time to consider an economy version of that that, uh, that doesn't come as feature-rich and, and is built to order. Maybe it's more assembly-friendly, et cetera, or quick ship, et cetera. So, um, but the other thing as far as adjacent products are concerned, is and we talked earlier about air disinfection being one of those those categories so i won't uh, elaborate on that but that's that's definitely one of them but also one of the growing areas even in a pandemic of of lighting products um is is horticulture so you have companies that are already bending metal they're already using drivers they're already buying leds and um it's it's a special science just like human-centric lighting there's lots of science to it and there's there you get 10 experts in a room and there's 10 different opinions about how to best apply it the same is true for horticulture i think um, but that's certainly a growing um, a growing part of the industry. So it could be that that folks now it takes years sometimes to develop a good robust product line there. But I I, I would see that with with legislation that's enabling the cannabis market and and the larger part of that market though is really this just just regular old organic uh, growth of, of crops etc. That, that that's growing indoors now. I think that's a, a, an area that we could see. And then one last example of an adjacent market that's starting to take a trend, this is more in the specification area, is, and we, we've seen companies from other industries come into lighting, like some large companies or maybe some small companies, like Landscape Forms is a uh, outdoor, they do like architectural benches and other furnishings for outdoor uh, commercial and, uh, areas, and, and they make bollards and other light fixtures. And, and so we see people come into our space, but I think we're going to see more people maybe going into adjacent spaces. And Focal Point is a good example of this, and Shaper is doing this, and Axis Lighting is doing this as well, where they make acoustic fixtures, where you have like a linear fixture or a round fixture or something. And it's it's padded with acoustic panels because now we have lots of buildings that don't have the acoustic ceiling. So you just have these open spaces with white noise machines and and beams and HVAC duct that's exposed. Um, so the acoustic fixtures help um, the sound. Uh, management so it doesn't bounce around and sound echoey, but now they're also making like acoustic panels that don't have light fixtures attached to them. So you can, you know, see companies that are that are expanding into areas. It's creating revenue. It's it's matching the focal point fixture, but it's a focal point acoustic ceiling solution that goes in the conference room that isn't even a light fixture. So I think we'll start seeing um, those companies expand to uh, to create, you know, just get different parts of the project manual from a specifier standpoint. And it's it's exciting to see this because I think lighting touches so many things. Um, we see companies like Honeywell that just partnered with um, with some large companies, including Signify Lighting, but on that list was also Microsoft and Oracle. So you see companies like Honeywell and Train and others that are bringing lighting technologies under one roof as kind of a... Um, a sole source implementation solution, and I think we could we could as lighting people see us maybe just just taking steps to the left and right to help adjust that and grow the larger market. Yeah, you know, um, cannabis is to lighting what pornography is to the internet. You know, it seems like wherever cannabis goes, innovation follows. I always thought, look, everybody I knew who smoked dope had all the dope they needed to smoke, so I didn't know where the growth was. But I mean, they they must be selling it to somebody because like that. People are getting stoned way more because they're making a lot more dope and they're getting better at making it. But I think that the uh, the horticultural, it seems a little different. The human-centric or the integrative or circadian whatever crowd is not in agreement with all the manufacturers. Whereas I think the horticultural crowd and the manufacturers have largely come to a, a consensus on what works and what doesn't. And so I think that that's an example of where human-centric or integrative or circadian, whatever you want to call it, can go. 
when there's a consensus between manufacturers and, and researchers and scientists. You talked about a lot of unholy alliances there, Al. Unholy? Like, yeah, like companies you would never think would work together are working together. That's a little bit weird, you know? Well, I think isn't our industry um, – our industry has a lot of those examples over the years. I mean – you look at um, even back to the old fluorescent days, if we can if we can recall those, um, when when you had ballast companies competing with fixture companies, but still selling to them, and controls companies buying from competitors and selling to competitors, and like a company like Leviton sells to uh, you know a lot of lighting manufacturers, but they also compete with some of the lighting brands that Leviton owns. So I think there's there's in the Philips brands and other things. So there's lots of examples of that already. So um, it it's just kind of a, a situation that's been fairly common, in my opinion, throughout the lighting industry. But what I, what I do think is an interesting sweet spot that we could see, and Lutron's been leveraging this for years, is, you know, back in the day when you had fluorescent dimming ballast, um, you know, you, you recommend the fluorescent dimmer by the same company to go with the fluorescent dimming ballast for compatibility reasons. But now you see um, lighting companies, they're, they're creating their own control systems, their own controls products. It might operate on an open source type type protocol where you don't need to have a brand X fixture talking to a brand X control system. But I think companies will, will try to leverage that, that all in one solution to get the, um, to, to, to get the expansion sale. So that if you, if you're doing phase one of a project and it's all brand X, then phase two will be that same brand because you want the control system compatibility to be smooth and continuous throughout there. So I think that's one part that we might see there uh, as far as some of those, those different product components that are all funneling under the same roof. Well, he's been using brand X and I think the, uh, the key word you put is might. And I like okay. that word. It might, it might not. We're going to see. 2021's coming, Al. Thank you for being a guest, my man. Guys, always love being with you. Thanks for having me. Keystone Technologies. K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Greggy, KeystoneTech.com. Backlit flat panels. Thin and lightweight. And when I say lightweight, I mean it's light. It's like lighter than the box it came out of. I had one today. I, I opened it up and I... Did you spin I it on your finger? Fixture. I could have, like a pizza or whatever. The the fixture was he lighter than the cardboard box. And I'm not joking about that. Ooh. So it's lightweight. It also provides good light, nice, even, uniform light. It's backlit and it's got power selectable, meaning different wattages and lumens and different Kelvin temps right on the fixture itself. And four knockouts. Come on. You know, some of these clowns put in one knockout and expect that all fixtures mount that way. You need multiple options when you have knockouts. Yeah, you smart. need lots of knockouts. Sometimes the electrician runs out of the double knockout connector. He's got Jay-Z chain those. Come on, man. Get a grip. That's right. Go to KeystoneTech.com. That's K I haven't said get a grip on the show in a long time, man. Go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. And, of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. That's N-A-I-L-D.org, baby. Nailed.org. Time to get associated, Greg. I'm in. I am. I'll continue to be. You Happy. too. Yeah, for sure. And of course, Al, thanks for coming on the show. We love your website, Inside.Lighting. Yeah, man. He's one of the newsmakers of, or the news posters, or I don't know what you're going to call them, but he's got a heck of a website there, man. Written on the rectory wall, there's a sign there for all. You are lost, Lord is there to find you.